This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice Podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Merck, Sharp, and Dermcorp, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. As always, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. Today, we're providing a summary of data relating to SGLT2 inhibitors with a particular focus on cardiorenal data and what can be considered class effects. We'll then join Dr. Chris Cannon, Principal Investigator of the Virtus CV trial, to discuss what the latest outcomes trial means for both urticoflozin and the wider SGLT2 class. As usual, all references discussed during the session are available in the episode notes. In addition, if you're already thoroughly familiar with this topic, please do feel free to skip ahead to the interview at the five-minute mark. Results from the Virtus CV trial were released during the 80th ADA scientific sessions two weeks ago and have prompted a number of questions surrounding class and individual effects of SGLT2 inhibitors. Given the change in EASD and ADA guidance regarding these agents at the beginning of the year, now is a perfect time to revisit the clinical data surrounding the class, as well as the wider discussion surrounding SGLT2 inhibitors in the treatment of diabetes, cardiovascular disease and reducing renal risk. Back in 2015, the publication of Empereg Outcome set a revolution in motion in terms of how we treat diabetes. The trial was designed as a placebo-controlled non-inferiority trial in response to an FDA mandate in 2008 that all new diabetes medications should be scrutinized for potential adverse impacts on cardiovascular health. However, rather than just finding that the SGLT2 inhibitor was safe, Empereg found that empagliflozin was actually associated with a protective effect for their primary composite outcome, driven particularly by a reduction in cardiovascular death, hospitalization for heart failure, and death from any cause. The trial did note that there was no significant difference in rates of myocardial infarction or stroke between the empagliflozin and placebo groups. This trial changed the nature of the other cardiovascular outcome trials underway, with the attention pivoting from simple non-inferiority to proven cardioprotective effects. Over the following five years, every GLP-1 receptor agonist, DPP-4 inhibitor and SGLT2 inhibitor underwent their own cardiovascular outcomes trials, which demonstrated largely class-wide effects. In general, DPP-4 inhibitors had neutral effects on cardiorenal endpoints, and long-acting GLP-1 receptor agonists, including liraglutide and once-weekly agents, demonstrated benefits in reducing cardiovascular events, such as myocardial infarction or stroke. During this time, there was also increasing attention on the renal effects of these agents. SGLT2 inhibitors established a large body of evidence supporting a class effect in reducing onset or progression of renal failure, most recently in the Credence trial for canagliflozin. In addition, the DAPA-HF trial explored the use of dapagliflozin in non-diabetic people with heart failure and observed cardioprotective effects that were completely independent of glycemic reduction. Taking all these data into account, 2020 guidance from both the EASD and ADA recommended that both SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists were associated with cardiorenal protective effects. In particular, GLP-1 receptor agonists had more evidence to support major adverse event reduction, while SGLT2 inhibitors had stronger evidence in people with heart failure or chronic kidney disease. With all but one cardiovascular trial concluded, it appeared as though these effects were reasonably uniform across the class. Virtus CV has provided a complicated addition to the pool of cardiovascular outcomes by not demonstrating superiority for its SGLT2 inhibitor, urticoflozin. 
This randomized placebo-controlled trial was designed with a standard hierarchy of outcomes for analysis. The primary outcome was to demonstrate non-inferiority to placebo, with secondary outcomes to demonstrate superiority for a cardiovascular composite endpoint, cardiovascular death, and a renal composite endpoint. The results of Virtus CV were presented on the 16th of June during the 2020 ADA virtual meeting. Overall, the study found the hazard ratio for major adverse cardiovascular outcomes, or MACE, was 0.97, with a p-value below 0.001 for non-inferiority, but did not meet significance for superiority. Similarly, the other secondary endpoints, including cardiovascular death and hospitalisation for heart failure, were deemed non-significant. Due to the hierarchical testing of these outcomes, this prevented other observations from being deemed statistically significant. However, the trial did observe a 30% reduction in hospitalisation for heart failure, as well as a lower degree of EGFR decline among patients receiving urticoflozin versus placebo. Numerical trends were also observed. For example, the renal composite endpoint occurred in 19% fewer people in the urticoflozin group compared to the placebo group. However, the p-value for this was 0.08, and thus it was deemed non-significant. A meta-analysis of all SGLT2 outcomes trials was also presented at this ADA session, comparing where these urticoflozin results sit alongside Empereg, Canvas, Declare Timmy 58, and Credence. The presenter, Dr. Darren Maguire, concluded that the cardiorenal effects of SGLT2 inhibitors were largely consistent across the class, with the greatest magnitude of benefit in reducing hospitalization for heart failure and preventing progression of kidney disease. However, the question remains, why were the results of Virtus CV inconclusive, despite trending towards these same observations? Here to discuss that very question is Dr. Chris Cannon, cardiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and principal investigator for the Virtus CV trial. Thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Cannon. So first of all, it's a complicated question to ask, but I'm sure it's what everyone wants to know. Why do you think these results demonstrated non-inferiority rather than superiority? Is it a difference in urticoflozin's mechanism of action, the general cardiovascular health of patients, or luck? Well, as you noted, it is a big question that we've all wondered. I think in looking at the totality of evidence, we find that it really does fit into the pattern that's seen in all the other trials. Um, and, uh, you know, it likely just was a little unlucky on the, the p-values, um, where within a confidence interval of any finding, we tended to be on the lower end of, of that uh, confidence interval. The reason that we say that is that, again, all of the trends were fitting in the pattern, that there's a modest effect on, you know, very modest on MACE overall, but cardiovascular death was similar to several of the other trials, had almost identical findings uh, of non-significant but slightly lower cardiovascular death. Uh, the heart failure signal was identical uh, to what was seen, and the renal endpoint, I think, is going to be largely identical and, and significant when we look at different uh, endpoints. Uh, you know, we, we've looked at two so far, and one is, has a p-value of 0.001, favoring benefit on the fall in EGFR. 
So um, the top line takeaway is what was the p-value of the first superiority test? You know, it was 0.11, which you know is pretty close. You know, a bit closer to a trend than than negative, um, and so uh, unfortunately, it's it, you know the p-values didn't support a superiority claim, but I think the the overall findings are what we would expect with this class of drugs. Thank you. And just following that last thought, your colleague Dr. Maguire presented an interesting meta-analysis of SGLT2 outcome trials where it appeared that although urticoflozin missed the mark in terms of p-values and statistical significance, it was trending in line with the other agents in the class. With this in mind, do you still consider the SGLT2 class to have common effects? I would say yes. Um, the uh, this is what we're you know the question that one wonders is is can you rely on the the findings of the class in general class effects are what is seen unless there's some off-target effect like uh, has been seen in a few of the different agents you know those ceruvastatin was one of the statins that you know caused really bad myopathy but uh, still actually had positive other effects um, you know so generally things do act by a class effect and I think this fits in uh, more data analysis I think is is on us to do and present to try and um, demonstrate more carefully some of the other endpoints and and support of that concept. Thank you. And finally, in your opinion, should the results of VertiCV influence clinical decisions? For example, should they preclude urticoflozin from the EASD ADA recommendations for use in people with heart failure or CKD? Well, I think the these data do support the the guideline recommendations that are in place, and nicely the guidelines are you know, been keeping up rapidly with the new trial data, and this adds further, you know, support for them. Uh, certainly, in the patients with heart failure and CKD, they note that SGLT2 inhibitors are really the first choice, um, and our data certainly re reaffirmed that. Um, and for ASCVD patients, you know, I looked up the most recent prior meta-analysis for GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2, the hazard ratios are both 0.88. So it's identical findings, and they're actually given equal choice, although they listed GLP-1 first. Um, but the effects are, are, you know, modest but, but significant, and so they're recommended um, there. So our data are consistent with, with prior trials and reaffirm that the change in focus of the guidelines is away from titrating the hemoglobin A1C, but rather to choosing classes of drugs uh, that can help different patient populations. Um, and so a wonderful paradigm focused on clinical benefit and, and our data help reaffirm that concept. Marvelous, thank you. And with just the little amount of time we have remaining, uh, should these new data influence any within-class decisions when selecting between SGLT2 inhibitors? Well, choosing which of the agents, unfortunately, is often uh, driven by the insurance companies, at least here in the United States. Um, 
And so, um, you know, with the clinical effects being broadly similar, uh, a lot of times cost comes in as a factor. And I, I don't know how things are relative, and it seems each insurance uh, has a different order of which agent is preferred, uh, but that can often be a factor as well. You know, clinically, the, the biggest issue is to really choose the class. Uh, so many patients are not on these agents, whereas now we've seen across all the different trials that they're to have benefit. You know, the most recent look we had in a in a lipid registry looked at the patients with diabetes, only 15% of ASCVD patients were on either an SGLT2 or GLP-1 receptor agonist. And so we need to choose the classes that are shown a benefit and, and worry a little bit less on, on which particular agent, I don't think. But it's a wonderful opportunity to improve care for our patients. Excellent. Thank you so much for all your time today, Dr. Cannon. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to talk about these exciting new uh, trials and, and ways they can improve patient care. This brings us to the end of today's time. To summarize, the new results of VertiCV add to the body of data suggesting that the strongest effects of SGLT2 inhibitors lie in preventing hospitalization for heart failure and or worsening of renal insufficiency. Although these data themselves did not demonstrate statistically significant superiority for urticoflozin, they did demonstrate numerical trends in line with the wider class and add to further understanding of the effects of SGLT2 inhibitors as a class. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, all references discussed in the episode are available in the description, and we'd love to hear from you on social media. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app or recommend us to your colleagues. You can also access all of our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu, including interactive case studies and packages for small group learning. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to joining you again in the next episode, where we'll start looking at injectable therapies and their role in diabetes management.